Hello, so that's page 1144, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through his wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, that the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus crucified, Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Well, thanks so much, Tara. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Madush. Uh, let me add my welcome to James's. It really is great for us to be able to gather like this week after week and to spend this time uh, as we can in 1 Corinthians. Well, please do keep your Bibles open to that passage that's just been read, um, and let me pray for us as we begin. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would shine light on your words by your Spirit. Reach into our hearts and give us faith. Give us eyes to see your wisdom and your power in the message of Christ crucified. Amen. Anyone here familiar with Haagen-Dazs? It's a luxury ice cream. And that video is probably going to make you feel like having an ice cream now. I apologize. But hey, at least you know what Haagen-Dazs is. Now, here's the thing. A show of hands if you have any idea where Hagen does comes from. What's the place of origin? 
Yep, shout it out. U.S. beta. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's from Brooklyn, New York, right? It's not the most intuitive thing. Uh, it was a really small family-run business in the 1950s, and they were nearly priced out of the market. But instead of competing, the, the founder decided he would do exactly the opposite. He would design the most luxurious ice cream that was in existence, and he would sell it at five times the price of any other ice cream on the market. Sounds crazy, right? And then the crazier thing was then he was like, well, I know, I'll, I'll make up a foreign-sounding name. I, I think this sounds Danish. Hagen does. Those words don't mean anything. Um, some of those letters and sounds don't even exist in the Danish language. Now I look at that and I'm like, that seems pretty foolish. New Yorkers clearly didn't have maps or know much about language. <laughs> but in advertising, it's called foreign branding and it's pure genius. It happens all over the place. Lots of companies do that now. Um, Hagendas is a massively successful brand. See, things can sometimes appear foolish when we don't understand them, though they are, in fact, remarkably wise. Now, for the Corinthian Christians, I suppose for the Corinthians more generally, the art of persuasion, they called it rhetoric. It was highly prized. Good rhetoric was received by hearers as wisdom. Those who practiced it were uh, professional traveling speakers. They thrilled crowds with their words, using them to delight and captivate. The power was in the words themselves and in the human giftedness to use them. Now Paul, the apostle sent by Jesus, compared really poorly against that. In 2 Corinthians, for example, we read how people thought of him as lacking any sort of presence. They thought he was a poor speaker. He just wasn't impressive compared to all the others. Greeks thought his message must be foolish. Surely no wise message can come packaged like this. Now perhaps you've experienced something similar to that. You've spoken with a friend who's skeptical of the Christian message. You talked about the death and resurrection of Jesus. You explained that there's real historical events, sorry, real historical evidence for these events. You shared your experience of relating to a living God. And yet all of that just didn't come out very persuasively. It sounded lame. You felt a bit silly. Or maybe you've invited someone along to church. And there were butterflies in your stomach because you really hoped that everything would go well that day. You hoped there wouldn't be any cringe-worthy moments, that the preacher wouldn't make any clangers from, from the front. You see, you wanted them to see church at its very best. Of course you do. God's action in history through Jesus is the most significant news that anyone can hear. But my guess is that if you've been in that situation, if you've had a friend in tow, there would have been loads of moments that made you just wince a little. There would have been many things at church that you thought looked feeble and pathetic. 
See, our tendency is to think, I wish this was slicker, more powerfully preached, more eloquently communicated. We want Jesus to look good. We want the gospel to sound impressive. Well, these words in 1 Corinthians are written for us. Remember the Corinthian church. It had been richly gifted by God, but all of their focus was on people and gifts. And that pulled them apart from one another. Their boasting, their preoccupation with looking impressive was completely out of step with the message at the heart of who they were, the message of the cross. And the big contrast that come up in today's passage are between what is foolish and what's wise, what's weak and what is powerful. Things aren't always as they appear. Now, we're just going to focus on three things. God's message, God's people, and God's method. God's message, God's people, and God's method. So first, God's message. Uh, Verse 18, this is what it says. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved... It's the power of God. The message of the cross, the good news of Jesus' sin-bearing death, sounds foolish. It sounds foolish to those who are perishing, to those who are marching along to death. Here's why. People in general, we have a remarkable sense of pride. When we're desperate, popular wisdom tells us to dig deep and to find in ourselves the strength and imagination to persevere. Verse 19 is quoted from Isaiah 29. There, the superpower of the day, Assyria, had invaded Judah and was capturing stronghold after stronghold as they marched on Jerusalem. But instead of turning to God, the Judeans do everything they can to maneuver in that situation. They look for political alliances. They turn to Egypt for help. They rely on the strength of weapons and armor. They rely on mighty walls to protect them. That sounds sensible, right? But for Judah... Relying on human wisdom and strength was folly. And so God says to them in Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Their walls wouldn't protect them. Assyria would overrun Judah and march right up to the gates of Jerusalem. God had to miraculously intervene to spare the city. The message of the cross sounds foolish. Because to turn to Jesus, you first got to admit defeat. You have to say, I'm weak. I'm helpless. I can't do this on my own. 
The sort of outlook that keeps human ability and achievement right at the center will always come up short. That's what Judah did. That's what we do. And that's why the message of the cross sounds foolish. But it's even worse than that. The problem runs deeper. See, put yourself in their shoes. I'm staring death in the face, and you're coming along and telling me to look to a Jewish upstart who wasn't even clever enough to avoid the most shameful, degrading execution that there was. Are you serious? Look, I don't know about you, but if there's a terrifying army coming at me, then give me a more powerful army. Teach me a tactical ploy to even the odds. That will help. Don't point me to an embarrassing cross. What's that going to do? And yet that is the message of the gospel. See, dying on the cross gave you about as much dignity as being put on a sex offender's registry does today. It was the deepest shame as far as the world was concerned. Here's a bit of ancient graffiti. Uh, it was discovered in Rome. It says, Alex worships his God. You can see it's a, it's a man hanging on a cross, but he has a donkey's head. Alex worships his God, as if to say, what a joke the Christian message is. How foolish. Now take a look down at verse 22. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. The Jews say, show us powerful, miraculous signs, and we'll believe. The Greeks say, persuade us with a stirring argument. Convince us with undeniable proof. Incidentally, that's exactly what Jesus did. You can go read the eyewitness accounts in the Gospels. Jews and Gentiles still rejected him. Yet if you believe this upside-down message, you discover that it is actually God's power to save. Look at verse 24. But to those whom God has called, even Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's the way God in all his wisdom, has chosen to act, to rescue, to bless. The message of the cross is life-bringing. It's joy-giving. It's soul-satisfying. It's amazing. It is God's power to save. And if you've trusted in him, you've, you've experienced that. You've tasted that firsthand. 
But even so, our tendency, our inclination, is to want to tidy it up. We want to try and make the cross look a little more respectable. So we take the symbol of the cross, we, we polish it, we, we cover it in gold to make it look beautiful, to make it look valuable. In church, we sanitize it. Uh, you might see a cross somewhere. It'll probably be big and imposing or shiny. It might be in a stained glass window somewhere. We want it to look strong, noble. Or we think that it's not enough that Jesus died on the cross to save us from eternal death. And so we try to bolster the offering. We try and upgrade the package. And we make promises that Jesus never did. We may promise a, a comfy life now if you follow him. Your problems will melt away. You'll be successful. Things will work out for you. You will be safe from harm. But Jesus says, no, you won't. If you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. You will suffer now. You will suffer in this life. You will experience loss. You might even experience death. But you will enjoy glory with me later. Or we decide that some of Jesus' words are embarrassing. And so we just decide to edit them. A cross-shaped view of marriage or human sexuality or the place of women. Surely those are much too foolish for our time, for our culture. See, as we carry on reading 1 Corinthians, we are going to feel that temptation. There's a lot that is coming in this book that's really hard for us to hear. There's much that the world looks at and says, it's foolish. Let's get it clear right now. At the foundation, Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let's listen to him in that way. Well, the message of the cross may sound foolish to some, but it is God's power to save. What about God's people? Well, our text tells us that God's people are nobodies. Now pick it up from verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Remember verse 2 from last week? We were called to be God's holy people. We were set apart in Christ Jesus. That is what defines who we are. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential or powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify 
the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. In the world's eyes, the Corinthians were a decidedly unimpressive bunch. There was very little to commend them. They weren't the brightest. They didn't have much power. They weren't born to great families. But God had chosen them. God had acted in Jesus to set them apart as his. If salvation depended on wisdom, what hope would the foolish have? If it depended on strength, what hope for the weak? The reality is that we become Christian when we hear this foolish gospel. God works supernaturally in our hearts, so we become convicted of our sin. We realize that we are absolutely dependent on God's mercy. God chooses the low, the weak, the despised, so that all people, everyone, would be humbled, so that nobody would have any reason to boast, because there is nothing in you, there is nothing in me that commends us before God. Any pride or self-sufficiency or confidence in yourself is blown completely out of the water. There's nothing to stand on. Um, I really love how honest children are. If you hang out with enough of them, you'll get used to it. Uh, and they're also very easily impressed with themselves. I remember when one of our kids was learning to climb. They'd sort of kind of, you know, grapple up onto a bed or, or something else. I would be the one sort of bearing their weight while, while they did this. So, you know, they're, they're kind of clawing their way up, but I'm really the one pushing them up. And then they'd get up onto the top and turn around super excited with this massive grin on their faces, sort of saying, hey, look at me, look what I did. Isn't it impressive, Dad? And like any good parent, you say, hey, well done, how amazing are you? But we're the same. Our hearts are exactly the same. We find things in ourselves to be proud of. We've just become a bit more sophisticated at hiding it in company. But when you realize who's done it, it takes the shine off your pride, doesn't it? That's why when kids get bigger, they say, let, let me do it on my own. Don't help me. So that when they actually do it, you can really be impressed. Who has shown you love? Who's given you status? Who has made you a somebody? Jesus has. Take a look down at verse 30. It's because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. The cross exposes our wretched condition. It shows us that rejecting God, going our own way, is sin. It is an offense against our Creator God. 
the fair and proportional response to that crime of treason is a shameful death. But remember from last week, our God is a lavish, gift-giving God. He delights to show us kindness. He overflows with generosity. And so instead of treating us as we deserve, He steps down and takes our place on the executioner's block. It's completely upside down. In the face of my pride, He humbles Himself. How does that make sense? This is this is amazing exchange that happens at the cross. Jesus takes our sin. He bears God's righteous anger for us. And we by faith are clothed with his righteousness. By faith God joins us to Jesus in his death and resurrection. It's as if we died with him and we've been raised to new life with him. By faith in Jesus, we are made holy. We are set apart as his. Still messy, but holy. And he is our redemption. He has a claim on us as our creator, but still he bought us back at the price of Jesus' blood so that we are his. Now let me just pause here for a moment and hold out an invitation. If you've never heard this before, if you've never understood it until now, then will you take hold of God's amazing gift for us in Jesus? There is nothing better in him, you will find joy, you will find hope, you will find real, full life. Come and talk to me afterwards, and I'll pray with you. Or talk to the Christian friend that you came with. See, this helps us to focus on who did it all. Who's the, whole, who's the hero in the story? God chose. God called. God sent his son. Jesus is the one who went to the cross and died. He's the one who saves. And so as 31 puts it, if you're going to boast in anyone, boast in him. Boast in the Lord. He deserves it. He's done it all. God's message sounds foolish. God's people are nobodies. There's no room left for boasting in ourselves. Well, what about God's strategy? What is God's great method to save people? Well, surprisingly, it is weak speaking. Now, if you asked me, I would say that that is the dumbest idea in the world. It sounds absurd. Why would you use weak, unimpressive people like us to rescue others? Well, the answer we get here is that God does it because it makes him look good. This is Paul, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. 
When I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. Verse 3, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. See, when Paul first went to Corinth, he, he would have been tempted to fit in with the norm and proclaim the gospel with the wise-sounding rhetoric they were used to. But he didn't. Paul's confidence wasn't in how wise or how impressive he sounded. There were no bells and whistles to his preaching. He was wary of people putting their confidence in rhetoric. And so he intentionally avoided coming across as showy. Instead, verse 2, he resolved to know nothing while he was with them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He simply preached the message of Jesus dying on a cross for the sins of those who trust him. And that made it clear to everyone that those who believed did so in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who did the work, not Paul. The people didn't become Christians because they were manipulated or because they were bowled over by his artful words or, or profound philosophy. There was none of that on display. Their faith did not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the gospel of Christ crucified. Their faith rested in God's power. Now, I think the danger for us is that we think that God's mission depends on us being wise. If you're a follower of Jesus, you'll be tempted to think that the impact of the gospel, other people being rescued, depends on how impressive we are, or how, how eloquently, how, how well, how, how clearly, how persuasively we can communicate the gospel. Say someone asks you, at an unexpected moment, what's this whole Christianity thing about? What do you say? How do you react? Do you panic? See, the point isn't for us to convince our friends of our wisdom, you know, to give a, a faultless, insightful explanation of why they should believe the gospel. It's just me, a weak nobody, pointing my friend to the somebody. It's God's work, not our work. God uses us, but it's not about us. We think we need wise messengers, professional Bible teachers, great speakers, someone we came across online, or if we're having some sort of a mission event, some kind of big-name speaker, or the author of a well-known book, or someone with some kind of an amazing testimony to share. We don't need any of that. Listen to what God is saying to us in 1 Corinthians. The message of the cross is God's wisdom. It's God's power. Our weakness puts God's power front and center. 
There's nothing there to distract from it. And so remember this. God uses weak people like us in ordinary moments, using ordinary words to reveal himself and rescue a dying world. When you're tempted to believe otherwise, stick with this message of the cross. Please pray with me as we end. Our generous gift-giving God, we confess that we so easily shift the focus to us. We so easily lose sight of all that you've done and pat ourselves on the back, thinking there must be something special about us for having believed you. Forgive us. Will you captivate us anew with the power and the wisdom of God as we see it in the cross of Christ? May we boast in you alone. Amen.